Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Got a lot of talent that's buried in this church. It came to life here recently. Sam, we're glad you shared that. It was awesome. And thank you, Drew and Travis, for putting it to music, sharing it with you, the worship team today. Yeah. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Psalms, the 33rd Psalm. We're going to look at one part of one verse in Psalm 33. And then we're going to look in more detail at a passage in the book of 2 Kings, the 22nd chapter. So we'll begin with one half of Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. It was an age of wisdom it was an age of foolishness. It was an epoch of truth and an epoch of incredulity. It was a season of light and it was a season of darkness. It was a spring of hope. It was a winter of despair. Most of you have heard part of that at least. Many of you know who those words are attributable to. Charles Dickens opens his work, A Tale of Two Cities, uh, with those words. And the plot of the story, in a nutshell, is a study of three different members of that era in France and in London. Study their lives. Their lives were in an uproar at different times, turmoil, but each story turned out to be a picture of a life that appeared to be lost but was resurrected. Tremendous story, a tale of two cities. Today we're going to consider a tale of two nations, Israel and the United States of America. I don't pretend to be an expert on anything about these nations in this bigger, broader sense, but we're going to look at God's Word, and God's Word will teach us what we need to hear about these two nations. I'm going to begin with the nation of Israel, and rightly so. It is the older of the two, and it is the prototype of what a nation is to be. It began in a very inobscure way. You know who the first person was who made up the nation. It was actually a couple, a man by the name of Abraham and his wife Sarah. They lived in Ur of the Chaldees, they did not come from families that were monotheistic. Rather, they came from polytheistic backgrounds. But God began to stir in the life of this man, Abraham. He spoke to him. Listen to what he said to him when he was 75 years of age. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, 
And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was the beginning of the nation of Israel. One man, one woman with a promise. The promise, obviously, was that through the whole, the whole world through them was going to be blessed. They were quite old, 75, 65 in the case of Sarah. 25 years passed. We don't have to go into all the details of the story, but we know the outcome. A miracle child was born, Isaac. Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, gave birth to a son. And that son, Isaac, bore, and Rebekah did. There really were two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob was the favored one. Jacob married a woman named Rachel. They had between them, between her and another wife, Leah, and a couple of concubines, he had 12 sons. So those 12 tribes, the most prominent of those 12 sons was Joseph. His story begins in the 37th chapter of Genesis and goes to the end of the book. A marvelous story of God working in a man's life. And Joseph sold into slavery. Undoubtedly, he thought he was forsaken. He knew he was forsaken by his brothers who sold him into slavery, but probably he felt God forsaken at times when he found himself in a jail, a prisoner. Also, not only a prisoner, but he was a slave. All those things going on. God used him mightily. The Bible tells us in the book of Psalms that God sent him there having first sent a famine in the land that precipitated his being sent there by God. It was God who was involved in his being sold into slavery. Unbelievable. He went there and God was with him, the Bible says, because he trusted the Lord despite all the circumstances that would indicate he shouldn't trust the Lord. And then, of course, his father later joined him along with his 11 brothers whom he had not seen for years. They stayed there and the death of Joseph came and the Bible says that a king who did not know Joseph became the Pharaoh of that land and things which had begun so prominently and in such a promising way for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob turned sour. For 400 years, the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptian nation. They were no more than chattel in that nation. And they cried out to God and they cried out for deliverance. And God heard their cry from heaven and he sent Moses, one of their own, to come deliver them. You know the beautiful story that's recorded in the book of Exodus, how that happened. The 10 plagues that God sent upon that nation to finally set them free. They left approximately 1.8 million people, a conservative estimate would suggest. And for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. And the reason for that is because they had to get Egypt out of themselves. And what do I mean by that? Well, when you study the concept of Egypt in Scripture, you learn that Egypt is a symbol of the world. And it takes time, once you've been in the world, to be free of the influences of the world. In the book of 1 John, the Bible says, do you not know that you cannot love God and love the world at the same time? 
you have to make a decision. This is the broad decision that all of us have to face and the final decision we have to face when it comes to giving our lives to God through Jesus Christ, to put the world in the background as we focus on Christ. Jesus says, what does it profit a person? To gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. For what shall a person give in exchange for his soul? The answer is the ultimate thing of value in your life and in my life and in God's eyes as it relates to you and me is our soul. God is interested in us and he knows how detrimental the world is to us. Consequently, he had to get rid of all that worldliness in the 40 years of wilderness wandering. The group that had begun with 603,550 men, 20 years of age or older, all but two of them died. The two who survived, Caleb and Joshua, those two men had gone into the promised land to spy it out as representatives of their specific tribe of Jacob or Israel, and then the other 10 had gone too. The majority came back and gave a negative report. They said, it's as beautiful as it was portrayed to us to be. It is as lush and rich as we were told. However, there are a tribe of giants there. They are the Anakim, and they made us, when we thought about them, to feel as though we were grasshoppers. And because we felt that way about ourselves, we became like grasshoppers in their eyes. So our advice, Moses, is not to obey God, wait a while before we enter into the promised land. This is also the story of many people who seek to follow God. They wanna put their toe in the water of the best God has for them, but they're holding back something because they're afraid of what lies on the other side of the Jordan River, figuratively speaking. But Caleb and Joshua said, we can do it. Two men against 1.8 million people. The odds are not too good, are they? I guess we could put Moses in that camp of those who would say, yeah, and you could put Aaron probably, but generally speaking, it was a really stacked deck against them. They made it through the wandering. They went in, they were rewarded. Joshua was scared, by the way. How do we know that? In the first chapter of the book of Joshua, no less than three times in the first chapter, we hear God saying to Joshua, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. Look, fear is not incompatible with faith in the sense we all fear certain things and Satan is the perpetrator of fear in our lives and he wants to scare us away from really going all in with the Lord. But by God's grace and obedience to God, what did God say to Joshua? Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth meditated on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it, then you will be prosperous and successful. And Joshua denied himself the privilege of being afraid. He stepped out. He did what the Lord said and he led the people in. After they began to get settled in and conquered the land, there were 14 judges of Israel 
two of whom are not in the book of Judges. Those two are Eli and Samuel. Eli was not a good judge. Samuel was a superior judge. He was a prophet also. He led the people. And the people began to clamor for a king. And it made Samuel so sad, but also it made him mad because he had been their leader. And we see a side of Samuel that's not altogether selfless because he wanted to retain that position of the leader of the nation. But God said to Samuel, I love this. He said, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, but they're rejecting me as their king. I hope you know that Israel was not a monarchy. It was a theocracy. And the king of kings is the theocrat. There's only one person to whom God's people are to answer, regardless of what their nationality is. In the final analysis, we answer to the one true God because the Bible says, it is appointed unto once for us to die. Everyone in this room will die. And at that time, we will stand before a holy God and we will give an account of our lives. If we know Jesus, if He is our Lord, if we have crowned Him our King as well, if we have submitted to Him, sought Him, feared Him, followed Him, drawn near to Him, the result will be that we will be welcomed into our heavenly home. Do you look forward to that? I do. I digress now in talking about it, but it's so exciting to think about. I can't help but talk about it a little bit. Well, Samuel sighed, and he went and he talked to the leaders of Israel. And he actually tried to talk them out of it, even though God said, let them have their way. He tried to talk them out of it. And this is what they said. They said, no, we want a king just like all the nations have kings. They wanted the world's way, didn't they? They wanted to be like the world. Here is something that spells death for us spiritually. If we want to be like the world, if we want to compromise just a little bit, Lord, just a little bit, then the outcome is not a good outcome. It cannot be. You remember when Elijah faced off with the prophets of Baal and Asherah on Mount Carmel, and he stood there and he said to the bystanders, the Israelites who were just watching to see if the God whom Elijah served, the God to whom Abraham paid allegiance and Isaac did and Jacob and Joseph. Did that God really exist? Would he really overcome the powers that they had seen associated with the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah, his female consort? And he did, God did. They watched and he said to them, if the Lord is God, if Jehovah is God, if Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Baal is the way of the world. Baal was the Canaanite God. He was part of their understanding as soon as they went there because all the people who inhabited the land in one way or another worshiped Baal. He was the God of fertility. 
not just of the land he was, the God of agriculture, but he was the God of fertility in the human race. He was the one who gave life to a woman and a man in the context of their relationship physically. And then Asherah was the female counterpart. And these two gods, God and a goddess, were worshiped there. And by the way, we're going to see as we look at the book of 2 Kings how even the nation of Israel began to compromise and they mixed some of Baal worship and Asherah worship in with their so-called worship of Yahweh, the Lord God. And the result was what it always is when we seek to mesh the world with the Lord and the teaching of the Bible. We compromise. This is something that was true of the New Testament people. And Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew that. He said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So, here we are. The last judge is Samuel. God gave them a king in Saul. Saul was a bad king. You know that. If you know anything about the Old Testament. He was followed by David, a man after his own heart. David was a good king. Obviously not flawless. Many times he is thought of as just being a lecherous person. He had an affair with another man's wife. She bore a child. The child died. Then they continued to be husband and wife. And Solomon was the offspring of their relationship. He was the one who succeeded David. The wise young man, when he had a visitation prior to his coronation, God visited him. And in his dream, he said, you have one thing you can ask for and you can be sure I'm going to answer that. Do you remember what he asked for? He asked for wisdom. And God came to him and said, because you didn't ask for riches, didn't ask for power, didn't ask for honor, you ask for wisdom, I'm going to give you all the rest. And he did. A man who started off so well, Solomon started off so incredibly well. We owe the large part of the book of Proverbs to his writing. Ended up so poorly because he compromised. How did he compromise? He compromised by making allegiances with nations around. The way he would do that around Israel to spread his influence and his power, to extend the borders of Israel. And during his reign, Israel made more advancement in terms of the acquisition of land than they ever did before. Everything after his reign began to shrink. He married women. He had a thousand wives and 3,000 concubines. That's a lot of women to keep happy, isn't it? And what happened was many of these women came from places where Baal was the God or Asherah was the God. And you can't hang around people as closely as you do to your mate if that mate is antagonistic toward the one true God whom you wish to know without it affecting you. His life ended poorly at the age of 60 if you do the math. 
His son Rehoboam succeeded him. Rehoboam was approached by a council of elders in Israel. You see, at the end of Solomon's life, in his expansion, what he did, he really roughed the people up. They were not slaves in the sense that they had been slaves in Egypt. However, in a way they were. They would take shifts coming and doing building on the temple and other projects that the, the King Solomon wanted. And he mistreated them. He treated them like dogs, really, when they did the work. So this consort of leaders, elders come and they say, as they come before the young King Rehoboam, if you will serve us, you will be surprised how well we respond to your service. Don't be as tough on us. Don't be disregarding of us like your father was disregarding of us. He said, let me think about it. Rehoboam dismissed them. Then he called in his peers. He told them what he had been told. And then he listens to what they say. They huddled together and they said to him, look, Ray, what you ought to do is call these old dudes back in. And when they come, just lift your little finger and say, my little finger is thicker than your father, my father Solomon's thigh. He took their advice. The elderly men came. That's what he said to them. And it precipitated a civil war. Almost instantly there was this war. There were 12 tribes, remember? And you may have in your mind a picture of modern day Israel. It was bigger than the modern picture of Israel is today in terms of the different tribes and the lands they had responsibility for to make up the union. But what happened was there was a man by the name of Jeroboam. He was a charismatic figure. He was a leader. He was a conqueror. He became the king and he led the revolt. Ten tribes. In the south, there was left only two tribes. But the one tribe that was most significant because it was the tribe whose territory included Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, what was there that was of such utmost importance? It was the temple. What was in the temple that was so important? The Ark of the Covenant. It was the place that atonement was made annually on the Day of Atonement. And so what happened was, is this man in the north, he was a skilled warrior. He was a skilled leader. He was a smart man. He began to think, if I let the inhabitants of my tribes go annually to the festivals, three of which are required according to the law of Moses, to go there to worship the Lord, it's going to backfire on me. They're going to disassociate themselves in their allegiance to me because they like the worship of the one true God. So this is what I'm going to do. He thought back over what he knew regarding the history of Israel and he recalled the story of Aaron when Moses was on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments and the people said, make for us a golden calf. They had worshiped the image of calves or cows in Egypt along with the Egyptians. They had compromised their worship. And he agreed to it. He made that golden calf. You remember the story. 
It infuriated Moses for good reason. When he came off the mountain, he destroyed it, mashed it into dust, threw it into the stream where they were camping, and then basically made them drink that gold as it was crushed up. But what this man, Jeroboam, the king of the north, said, hey, I'm going to do one better than Aaron. I'm going to make two gold calves. I'm going to put one at Dan and one at Bethel. And I'm going to say to them, and this is what he said to them, hey, don't overdo it. Be easy on yourself. It's a lot simpler for you to stay in our kingdom and go and worship the Lord at one of these shrines to one of these golden calves. And the people bought it. It's amazing how gullible people are and how we are drawn to convenience. So here's another problem. Compromise is a problem big time. And convenience, spiritual leaders that seek to make everything cushy for us are not to be trusted because they have ulterior motives, motives that are different from what God would have. And it's nice to be in air conditioning comfort today, so please disregard what you're experiencing today in that way. I'm, not, I'm just kidding. But it's nice. It's not about like we have to beat it into people, we who are spiritual leaders. Not at all. But we need to speak the truth. Sometimes the truth hurts, doesn't it? Sometimes it does because we're confronted in our own worldliness at times by the truth of God's Word. And thank God for that kind of confrontation. Well, if we go forward in the history of the northern tribes, 722 B.C. marked the end of the north. It was destroyed, in a sense, the coalition of those ten tribes by the Assyrian Empire and absorbed into that empire, leaving just the south. The south continued to be viable. And in that southern monarchy, if you will, they were all, all the kings, the kings in Israel were not all, or if any, descended from David. They were descendants of Abraham. But all the kings of Judah descended from David. There were three who were reformers. The others were pretty worldly, to say the least. Let me mention the three who were formed. Joash, and he was really not a reformer. He came to the throne as a boy, basically, a child, really, a young child, preschooler. He was watched over by a priest, the high priest Jehoiada, and Jehoiada was a devotee of the Moses law. And so he reformed, and he guided his mentee, this boy who had grown into a young man and then to a mature man until he died. That is, Jehoiada the priest died. And then almost overnight, everything that Joash had reformed began, began to decline. Why? Because the reform was externally motivated by another person, not internally motivated by the Spirit of God. Going forward, Hezekiah was truly a reformer who was a man who was also committed to renewal in his personal life, and he sought to help the people experience renewal too. He opened up the temple, which evidently had been shut down for no telling how long. 
And when he opened up the temple, it took 10 days to get all the unclean things out. And then they celebrated the Passover. And he did many things that had not been done. The Passover had not been celebrated like that since the people had come into the promised land. Can you believe that? Well, his son was Manasseh, who was the most wicked of all the kings of Judah. He reigned 55 years, followed by his son Ammon. Ammon followed in the footsteps of his father Manasseh. And then comes the man that we're going to look at today in the remaining moments, Josiah. Josiah was different. In fact, let's look at 2 Kings chapter 22 for a moment. Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David. Nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. That's quite a commendation, isn't it? He was a man who sought the Lord. This is really the summation of his life, which is recorded in 2 Kings 22 and 23. Now turn over to 23 for a moment, and let's look at what is written by the writer of 2 Kings about him. Verse 25, near the end of his life. Now, in the book of 2 Chronicles 34, we're told... Eight years old, he ascended the throne, just exactly what is told here. But when he was 16 years old, eight years later, the Bible says, he began to seek God. Do you have any idea about how important it is to seek God? He began to seek God. As a 16-year-old, he start, started his quest to know the Lord. Ten years passed, as we're going to see, before he finally really came to know God. It's worth the investment of the time that you and I place in seeking the Lord so we could really know Him. And we see that he was a reformer before he was personally renewed. And that happens many times. People want to get religious because they feel like there's something missing in their lives and there's things they want to do for God to reform the culture, reform their world. And he did this. The story is told, I'll just let you read it on your own, verses 3 through 7 of chapter 22, how he gave his second-hand man, Shaphan, the order, go and go to the temple, tell the chief priest, Hilkiah, to start the work of renovating the temple. Money has already been made available, just tell him to do it. He did that. And when this delegation, including Shaphan, the scribe, arrives there, look at verse 8. Then Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, who read it. Does that surprise you that the book of the law, the word of God, had just sort of sat somewhere in the temple for no telling how long? And the high priest evidently did not even look at it. That's surprising, isn't it? And it's a caution to us. Once we read the Bible, sometimes we think we're done. 
What else is there to read? But we need to be continually brought before the Word of God in order for God to speak to us. And the verse 9 says, Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought back word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. So Shaphan was saying, What every person who serves a superior in his or her workplace does when reporting, having been given an assignment, he reports, I've done what you told me, boss, sire. But then he adds this, verse 10 says, Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. And it came about, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. What's that all about? Well, when a person in this part of the world wanted to show great grief, what the person would do would tear off garments. And in this case, royal robes. And in its place, that person would ordinarily put on sackcloth. Sackcloth is like burlap. You ever tried to put a burlap shirt on before? It's very uncomfortable, isn't it? It itches you like crazy. It's painful in a way but he tore his clothes. It's a sign of repentance, recognition of who the one true God was in the case of Hilkiah, speaking these words and giving them to this man, Josiah, through Shaphan. And then the king, verse 12, Josiah commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahakim, the son of Shaphan, Akbar, the son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people in all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning it. Those men did exactly what they were told. They went to a priestess. Her name was Huldah. She lived in the city of Jerusalem. This is what she says in 15. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, behold, I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods, and they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath burns against this place, and it shall not be quenched. This man, Josiah, was renewed. He saw who God was as he heard the Word of God read. He then read it for himself. He heard from the book of the law, which probably refers to what we know as the book of Deuteronomy, its entirety, at least in large part, that would have been what he had heard read. He had heard read chapter 17, as we would declare it, which gives the directions to anyone who becomes king. And he realized that he had not fulfilled those directions. In fact, he had actually gone against that. And immediately he launches into a reform. Renewal was real. Faith without works is dead. We were created in Christ Jesus, the Bible says, to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. But we oftentimes get the horse, the cart rather, before the horse, don't we? We want to do things. We reform. That had been the reform of Joash 
It had not been the reform of Hezekiah, the grandfather or great-grandfather of this man, Josiah. But Josiah had real reform, and real reform results in action involvement. Now, I said this message is about a tale of two nations. Tale of Israel, we've seen this much of that story. We know it was not long after Josiah. It was only about, let me calculate it in my head, it was only 36 years before the city of Jerusalem and Judah fell at the hands of Babylon. But we see there were a lot of years, right, when people were indifferent, they were compromising, they opted for convenience rather than commitment to the Lord, and it backfired on them big time. But here, this man, Josiah, does reform work, even though he knew that the end was coming for him. God promised him he's going to have a uh, end coming pretty soon in the, verse 20 of chapter 22. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers. You shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Neither shall your eyes see all the evil which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. He died at the age of 39. And he did it in a weird way. He went off to confront the king of Egypt, Pharaoh Necho, who was not interested in fighting Judah at all. He was going to fight the king of Assyria to establish prominence in that part of the world. And he told him, don't come. He went anyway and he got killed. What's that all about? Well, the Lord spared him actually to see all the horrific things which happened to Jerusalem and its inhabitants and the destruction of the temple. It would have grieved him to no end. Well, what about the United States? Is our nation a nation that was founded on Christian principles? That's a question that's batted around a lot. People like to tell us it's not the truth. Well, let, just, let me mention just a few things that were said by our, some of our founding fathers. I'm going to begin with the father of our nation, so-called, George W. Washington. In his farewell address, some think it's the greatest work he did, and he wrote prolifically. He was a bright man and a great leader. He said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports, pillars, if you will. In vain, would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. I would encourage you to read the whole document, his farewell address. But the point being is government alone is not able to deliver peace to people, internal peace and prosperity. Listen to what he wrote also to a group of pastors seven years earlier. I'm persuaded you will permit me to observe that the path of true piety is so plain as to require but little political direction. In other words, he was admitting the ineptness of politicians to really preserve real religion. 
To this consideration, we ought to ascribe the absence of any regulation respecting religion from the Magna Carta of our country. There was no constitution at this time. He presided over the Constitutional Congress and the proceedings there. It was not at this time. He goes on to say, to the guidance of ministers of the gospel, this important object is perhaps more properly committed. In other words, a nation from President Washington's viewpoint, and his viewpoint was shared by many who founded our country, many of whom we'll never hear about. But what he was saying is, the gospel is the true religion, is what he says later in this description that he gives to these leaders of churches in Massachusetts and New Hampshire. And here's another thing I would like to indicate from the pen of Washington. It is vain to exclaim against the depravity of human nature on this account. The fact is so. The experience of every age and nation has proved the depravity of human nature, and we must in great measure change the constitution of man before we can make it otherwise. Can government change people? No, it can't. Because people are created in the image of God, and they are created when Adam and Eve sinned, God had told them, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to die. And then what did the devil say through the serpent to Eve, whom he was tempting? Surely you will not die. They ate. Did they die? Well, their bodies didn't die immediately. Their souls didn't die. They still could think. They could feel emotions. And they could make choices. That was obvious. But their spirit died. And only God is capable of renewing a person in the core of his, her being that will make out of that person who is born in sin, as David says in Psalm 51, which means is a natural born sinner. We don't have to teach each other to sin, to be selfish. It comes quite naturally, doesn't it, in all of our lives. And what happened was that God reconstituted man and still does. Women and men, when he saves us, what does he do? He makes that dead spot in us, our spirit, which is dead, come to life because he sends the spirit of life to indwell us. He sends Jesus who describes himself as the life to come and to live in us. And where there was darkness, there's light. Where there was death, there is life. And that life compounds when many people who know Christ join hearts and hands together to do as God would have them to do. Let me quickly read a few more quotations from our fathers. Benjamin Franklin, who was a deist, he didn't declare Jesus as his Lord. He said, he who would introduce into public affairs the principles of Christianity will change the face of the world. The sixth president of the United States, John Quincy Adams. The highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in an unbreakable bond the principle of civil government with the principle of Christianity. Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death, remember? He said, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Jay, the first 
chief justice of the Supreme Court. Providence has given to the people the choice of their rulers, and it's our duty to select and prefer Christians as rulers. Abraham Lincoln, during the Civil War, not one of the founding fathers we know, but one to whom we look with due respect, I might add. He said, do you, he was asked the question during the war, do you think God's on our side? This is what he said. My great concern is whether we're on God's side. That's his concern. Wise man. In his early life, in the 1830s, he wrote a book that was anti-Christ. His book was designed as a statement about his belief about the person of Jesus Christ. And that belief was that he was merely a man. But something happened when death knocked on his family's door. His father-in-law, who, whom he admired, he was a brilliant man, well-read. He had a book, Mr. Todd was his name, in his library that as Lincoln was grieving a loss of his father-in-law, he just scanned those books. He loved books. Abraham Lincoln did, even though he had no, virtually no formal education. He saw a book, he pulled it out, and it was an apologetic defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he began to read it, and he couldn't put it down. He read it, and he read it, and before he finished reading it, he was a changed man. Intellectually, he had not believed in Jesus, but intellectually, God spoke to him through the writing of a pastor in Springfield, Illinois, where Lincoln lived, and where Mr. Todd lived, and where Lincoln and his family resided, in the capital of Illinois. And so he was changed. Near the end of his life, when he had suffered so much heartache and felt so much weariness, when you look at a picture of the man and you realize he wasn't even in his 60s when he died, he looks like he's about 80 years old. Why? He had such a burden. He lost his son, Todd. And there was a pastor it was his pastor. He called him his pastor, pastor of the Presbyterian Church there in D.C. Be befriended him in his losses and consoled him. His name was Phineas Gurley. And this is what Lincoln said the week before he died to him. In confidence, he said, I have lost confidence in everything else but God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. He saw the emptiness of the world. The world offers you and me nothing but emptiness at the end. And God wants us to be men and women who know the Lord and serve the Lord. Remember that this great king, Josiah, he was renewed. But also remember, in less than 40 years, the nation was no more as it had been. It had been blessed by God immensely, but God has an expiration date on his patience with us as his so-called children. And what we need to understand is that we in this day and time are part of a nation and I am so grateful to have citizenship in the United States. It was nothing I had to do with it. I think of all the people who went before me. I think of 
a relative who was killed in World War II. I think of a good friend who was killed in the Vietnam War. I think of my father and all of his brothers, except one, four sons went off and served in the armed forces in World War II. And going back to my great-great-grandfather, William Woods, who was a Union soldier. And he was imprisoned in Andersonville Prison. He and his brother, who would have been my great-great-great-uncle if I calculate correctly, they almost died. And they were dying of thirst. And disease was rampant in that filthy hole called a prison. And they prayed, Lord, would you give us some pure water? And all of a sudden, this great thunderstorm came and burst upon the ground. And it was so torrential that it washed the ground of all the debris, all the waste that was on it. And lo and behold, right where they had prayed almost, there was a spring of water that had been bubbling and bubbling and bubbling up, but it could not be accessed because of all the filth. These are people in my background I know who served in the armed forces and served well and served to protect our country. And we know we are blessed by all the people who've gone before us. But please understand, in the case of Josiah, he was one who was truly renewed, but the nation wasn't. And what we need to understand, reforming things doesn't change a nation because we haven't dealt with the key need of humanity. What is it? It's spiritual. We have the gospel, which is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It's not accidental that when Jesus teaches us how to pray, how does he begin? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom is transnational. His kingdom came in the early history of the United States of America. But recent report that I heard is that 42% of adults in America claim any affiliation with a church. And we know being a member of a church doesn't make you a Christian, does it? You can be in a church membership role and be dead or in a doornail spiritually. But what we do know is it tells us something. There are probably many people on the outside of the institutional church, and there's a lot to criticize about an institutional church. I know that. But there are people out there who know the Lord. But that's a small number, isn't it? Let's say, take away the people who are not true believers and add the ones who are on the outside. We're still probably no more than 42%. And then I heard uh, really what really grieved me more than that. I heard prior to that statistic that only 16% of the generation of millennials in America, only 16% believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. That means they're not Christians. That's a whole generation we're going to lose. All our efforts at reform educationally, all our efforts, social reforms that we make, what good have they been? I mean, there's some good which comes out of that. Don't mishear me. But it hasn't had an eternal impact on them. So what does that have to do with us as a church? Let me give you some concluding suggestions. Think about these things. Renewal, not reform, is what God desires in order to change 
the United States of America and the world. Spiritual renewal. Now be sure, renewal is followed by reform. If you study the great movements, social movements in the history of the U.S., you will find, without exception, Christians right at the center of those movements. Every one of them. Renewals is a work of God's Spirit through God's Word. So our responsibility as the church is to proclaim the gospel, teach the gospel. I was visiting with a man who was working on my air conditioner last week, and we were talking. He said, you know, I go out and take the church to the people. What was he saying? I'm an evangelist, is what he was saying. He was not being ugly in his spirit. He was just telling me his name is Abraham, a good name for an evangelist. Abraham, he shares the gospel on the streets. And we need to realize we as the church are people who need to do the same thing. Revival is personal before it can be widespread. But if it only remains personal, then it's incomplete. We need to be men and women who are not ashamed of the gospel. National renewal. Let me stop here and I'll be done. If my people who are called by my name, God says, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Does our land need healing? Oh my. This land is in sore need of a spiritual healing. And it begins with us who know Jesus. We need to be like Josiah and come before the Lord in humility and cry out, Lord, forgive me. Make me what you want me to be. Help me to be a woman of faith, not just play acting, but really being such a person. Help me to be a man of faith. Be like David, created me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. Don't you love that? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Someone is in this room and you have no joy left in your life and you believe you've been saved and you may have but you've lost the joy. And it could be connected and probably is in some way to unconfessed, unrenounced sin in our lives. And then he goes on to say, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Do you know what has to happen? We need to get right. And then God will use us as individuals, but as a church. And not just this church. We need to pray for our sister churches all over the country, all over the city, and pray, God, bring a revival to this church. They're your church. It's the only hope for America. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.